0: reading for today is Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 through 19. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. Thank you, Laura. Morning, Redemption. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Uh, One thing about that uh, all-church annual picnic on the 20th that I really want to remind you of, because it's really close to my heart, uh, is that there is going to be food there. It's Bruce Brown. He brings his grill, and he grills uh, uh, hamburgers, cheeseburgers, hot dogs, and he makes his uh, special macaroni and cheese as well. It's really good. So uh, just want to remind you of that. So come hungry as well. The service will be a little bit shorter than normal, maybe an hour, hour and five minutes, and just pray for decent weather. It'll be a little bit chilly no matter what, but pray it isn't like... It was last night at that thing. So um, good morning. My name is Frank. If you're new here, I'm uh, the pastor, uh, the lead pastor here, just one of the many pastors that are here. Uh, this morning, we're, we're starting a, a brand new series, and it's going to end in about 40 minutes. It's a one Sunday series. Uh, we're calling it Taking Inventory, uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's a really, really helpful tool. Uh, this is something that Uh, We have two founding pastors at Redemption Church. Uh, Tom Schrader, he's one of our founding pastors. This is something that he's been doing for almost 30 years uh, in his ministry. I've sat through this at least 20 times. This is the first time I'm actually teaching it. So I'm taking Tom's material and going to teach through his material it, it, as he, he he like gave me the outline. There will be my stories and my illustrations. I'm not going to rip those off from him either, even though they're probably better than mine. But nevertheless, uh, it's it's really his material. So, those of you that know Tom, uh, first of all, I, one thing I'd really love for you to do. He'll get a kick out of this. Maybe um, at the end of church today, email him and tell him how good he was at Redemption Arcadia this morning. Okay, so. I think, I think he'd love that. Anyway, so um, it, it, I've sat through this maybe 20 times. Uh, the key, though, is that I didn't just sit through it. I actually did this, and it's really, it really helped. It's, it's one of the best uh, tools I've ever run into. It, it's what we might call uh, various grids for self-evaluation. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to evaluate last year, and then we're going to talk about some ideas for 2019, how to make that uh, an even better year. Uh, and just uh, making comparisons all morning long. In the marketplace, you, you know, I, used, I, I, I ran uh, retail businesses and restaurants for 20 years in the marketplace. And, and so I know in the marketplace, we do inventories, we do reviews, we do postmortems, and we develop strategies and set goals. Why don't we do that in our spiritual lives? Why aren't we more intentional about doing that in our spiritual lives? And let me just tell you this as well. Again, a lot of little side trips. Uh, today, if you're a note taker, today is a note taker's dream. I mean, th- th- you're, you're going to be writing furiously. One of the things you may want to do is just wait till the end of each slide, uh, each uh, slide that's up there, um, to just take a picture of it. It might help you because I'm telling you, it, and this stuff is so good, as, as Kenny Banya has said, this is gold, Jerry, gold. I mean, it's just, it's really, yeah, I know, okay. So, anyway. So here you go. Let's, let's um, think about 2018. Let's evaluate that. And the first question, when, when I say to you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how was 2018? Your mind should, and most likely does, goes to a set of criteria by which you're going to evaluate it. You're going to start asking yourself some questions. And here's what those questions might look like. Uh, did you make more money in 2018 than in 2017? Did you improve your position or enhance your career in 2018? Did you increase your influence over others in 2018? And this is the one that we may not discuss out loud, but we, we, we do it secretly. Did we cause envy or jealousy in others in 2018? Because we take particular pleasure out of that. So think about Just get a number in your head. I, I would call these kind of the, the, the normal... Um, grids or tableaus that we would use to evaluate a year. Uh, and, and, and I don't think they're unimportant, maybe the last one isn't, an, isn't, isn't a great question, but I don't think those are unimportant questions, I don't think they're illegitimate questions, but I would argue that they're not the most important questions that we could ask. There's more profound questions. So let's ask some different questions using a different set of criteria, a more fo- profound criteria, And see if a different number emerges for 2018 than the number you got in your head uh, with those first four questions. Here's the first one. Did you recognize the importance of self-evaluation? Did you recognize the importance for self-evaluation? And I would add serious self-evaluation. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions, not others, so then they can find fulfillment in their own walk without comparing themselves to anyone else. Now, I've talked about this before, um, especially being in the social science arena. You and I as human beings, we just naturally do this. We are prone to what's called the social comparison process. We are constantly evaluating ourselves against others people we know people we don't know we do this at the gym we do this at the mall or the grocery store we do this at work we do this in our neighborhood we do it at church we we do it everywhere we go we're constantly evaluating we do it academically i have to we're guided you know by ferpa laws right Ryan, you know, the, we can't let anybody else see what somebody gets on a test. So you have to fold the test up when you hand it back to a student because every student wants to know how everybody else did. I, when I was a student, I was the same way. I developed strategies for finding out how everybody else did. And here's the reason why. The reason we do these social comparisons is, is because we can always find a way to be proud of ourselves and self righteous so We can always find somebody that we kind of measure up well against. And, of course, the problem with that is that we should be measuring ourselves against Jesus, okay? And we should be uh, submitting ourselves to his salvation as a result of that. But Paul understood this social comparison process 2,000 years ago without... Social science research. He knew that this is what people did, either just by observation, I think we can observe it, or by the power of the Holy Spirit in him. So Paul was calling the Christians of his day to do something that today we all desperately need as well, and that is self-awareness. How honest are you really with yourself, about yourself? Or are you an expert, as all of us really are, at ferreting out reasons why we rule no matter what? and everybody else kind of sucks. That's just the way we are. And I tell you, this is really hard to do alone. This is where it gets really sticky. Because if you do this alone, like I said, you're always going to find reasons to go, "Eh, everything's okay, and you have no idea what your blind spots are. You have no idea who your blind self is. So, have you properly asked others for helpful, critical input into your life. Now, here you go, don't just ask anybody. You need to understand that there will be people who will abuse that privilege for an agenda that does not line up with your best interests, and that's a problem. What you need to do is you need to find people whom you can trust Certainly that's true, but also who are going to be able to tell you these things uh, without you feeling like at least like you're not loved by them and that they really don't have your best interest at heart. It's going to sting, it's going to hurt at times, but it's really got to be because they love you and they have your best interest at heart and no other agenda for it. All of us need this help, though. All of us need this counsel. All of us need exposure to our blind spots. Many of you have... Boards of directors in your businesses. Why don't you have a little board of directors for your spiritual life? You ever thought about it that way? So, think about it. One, ten, somewhere in between. Here's the second one. In 2018, did you understand the value of your time? Paul writes his second letter to Timothy right at the end of his life maybe the last letter that we have of Paul's that he wrote and he says for I am already being poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near Paul knows that he's about to be executed by the Romans so he's at the end of his life and he's saying listen life is really fast you need to understand that life is fast can I get an amen probably stronger from the older people than the younger. The younger people are like, it's kind of going slow to me. Let me tell you something, you, you, you need, here you go. This is going to depress some of you, but I think it's great wisdom and insight. My grandfather, who lived to be 100 years old, on his 95th birthday at his celebration, I was talking to him, and I was in my 20s at the time. And, and he said, Frank, I got to tell you something about life. He says, um, I'm 95. You need to understand that the second two-thirds of my life went faster than the first third, because time is actually relative. And, and I remember when he told me that, I was thinking, well, that's kind of depressing. I'm glad I'm in my 20s. But then now I'm 59, so I'm, I'm 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 in bad shape. But at any rate, here you go. It also reminds me of that whole toilet paper analogy. Maybe you've heard that one. You know. It, Uh, the older you get, the faster time goes. Here you go. The the closer you get to the end of the roll of toilet paper, the faster it goes. Okay. And if if you're the one who always changes the toilet paper, you notice that kind of stuff. Okay. So now you're getting to, you know, I'm 59, man. It's as I'm just spinning. Okay. Right now. So it's Paul saying life is fast. He's, here you go. He's saying, listen, your time is actually your most valuable asset. More valuable than anything, any resource that we have. Now, why is that? Because it's finite, and it's not different from person to person. So what we do with our time is critically important. Time levels every playing field everywhere. It's 168 hours a week. Nobody gets more, nobody gets less. Time is the great equalizer. So how are you spending your time? How are you investing your time? And, and frankly, is, is, think about is Isn't this one of the areas of our life where we have the most regrets is how we've spent our time in the past? I love this illustration. This is one illustration of Tom's. It's, it's like so many of us are living our lives like it's an NBA basketball game, and, and we're waiting for the PA announcer to say, for two minutes, two minutes, and then that's it. And now we're going to play hard. I've got two minutes left. Now I'm ready to... To play hard. That's kind of the rap on the NBA, by the way, if you weren't knowing. They only play hard in the last two minutes. I don't think that's necessarily true, but are you waiting for God to yell two minutes or two months or whatever? Um, I have a a friend. uh, He majored in sociology in college in the late 60s. And he tells of, of this sociology professor that he had at his college who was telling all of his students, I am. Don't laugh. I, I think it's funny. You can laugh. I, I am investing heavily in Winnebago stock. <laughs> Winnebago. You know what Winnebagos are, right? Those big recreational vehicles that you hate to be behind in, on the freeway. Okay. So I'm. W- and there, why are you investing in Winnebago stock? Here's what he said. Computers were just really starting to come online then. He said this computer thing is going to be amazing it's going gonna, it's gonna to shorten our work week, it's going to give us less work to do, and we're going to have more leisure time, and so people are going to be spending their money on recreational vehicles. This guy's teaching college somewhere. <laughs> okay, how many of you feel like you have so much more time now because of your computer and the internet? It's just the opposite has happened. It's squeezing us from every possible Direction, time, is our greatest asset. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 12 says, Teach us, Lord, to number our days with discernment, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Foolishness spends time frivolously. So you and I, we can waste time, we can spend time, invest time, sacrifice time, lose time, pass the time, and we can wish that we had more time. But we can't accumulate more time. You can't do that. Nor can we stop time. And if we don't prioritize our time, we will have regrets. We talk occasionally here, obviously, about stewardship. And and money is the primary area where we talk about stewardship. Um, But it's not just money. We have a responsibility to also be stewards of every other resource God has given us, including our time. We need to understand that. So, one, five, ten... Number three, did your victories exceed your defeats? Paul continues in, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 7, he writes, I have fought the good fight. I, I hear him write, the good fight. Okay, have there ever been a good fight where there weren't some setbacks? I mean, no matter what, we're going to lose from time to time. We're going to fail from time to time. And Paul had setbacks. Paul had failures. But we can learn from those setbacks. We can learn from those failures. James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, he says, Consider it all joy, my beloved, when you encounter trials of various kinds. Because you know the testing of your faith, it produces something really helpful. It produces perseverance, steadfastness, patience, and endurance. We can learn from our setbacks. We can learn from the crucible of life when we get heated up. And we need to remember that failure is not uh, fatal. Failure is not fatal. But here's the other thing we need to remember, and I think we have a harder time remembering this. Success is not permanent. Success is not permanent. Um, We did Sarah Ball's memorial service yesterday. She had a tough last month of her life, and it was one of, the, one of the most uplifting, glorious memorial services I've ever been to. There were a number of speakers. The best wine yesterday at this service was from a, a pastor in Tucson who came up who knows her family very well, and he said, a person's life is not evaluated based on the last month. Would anybody in this room want their life evaluated on the last month? Now, here you go. You got it. Not the last month that you just lived. I'm t- look forward to your last. How good is that last month really going to be? You're going to be, it's not going to, usually the last month of your life is not the best month of your life. We need to understand that. We need to recognize that failure is not fatal, success is not permanent. And we need to realize that this thing never, ever, ever ends. You know what the greatest misunderstanding about retirement is? I haven't retired, so I haven't experienced this firsthand, but every retired person tells me this. They assume that when they retire and they reach that American dream that life is going to be bliss and the battle just keeps going on. And in many ways, the battle intensifies during retirement. A lot of people... Retire, And six months later, they've been playing golf and drinking wine since noon every day for six months, and they're like, i got to go back to work, man. This is awful, <laughs> okay? It, it, the battles just continue, and in many ways, they just get worse and worse and worse. Our identity is not in our failures, but I think we need to also do a better job of acknowledging our victories as well. Christians especially, we, we have this kind of this... Um, sort of dour way of of putting a negative spin on so many things, I think. We, We need to acknowledge our victories and say, yes, God is working, God is alive, Jesus is doing something in this world and point to those examples. And then remember that Paul's words in Ephesians, he says our greatest battle, our most important battle is in fact spiritual. That's why he says in Ephesians 6 that we must put on and keep putting on the armor of God so that we can engage and defeat the schemes of the devil because he's out there. He's trying to take us down. So again, did your victories exceed your defeats? Three, six, nine. Number four, did you finish well? Paul continues in Second Timothy 4, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. You know, everyone can start the race, right? Everybody, everybody can show up for the start of the race. You just have to, all you have to do is just get out of the car and be there. But have we trained to go long? That's the critical question. Have you and I trained to go long? And are we aware that we're, we're going to be required to go long? This is a long game. It's so easy to rally around a fast starter, isn't it? Many of us have known fast starters in our lives. And it's also really easy to be a fast starter, isn't it? But the one who finishes is the one with the prizes. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes goes into strict training, and they do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not not run like somebody running aimlessly, and I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. But I discipline myself so that after preaching, I might not be disqualified from this race. So are, are you running, but you're running aimlessly? Are, are you shadow boxing? Are you, are you boxing and there's really nothing to really box about? How many of you are fighting battles that aren't even worth fighting? Are you choosing your battles well? And, and, and is that going to help you to finish well? And have we disciplined ourselves to be ready for the marathon of life and... The slog and the stench of the trenches. Because life has really lived in the trenches. We need to understand that. We want to live all of life on the, on the mountaintops, but it's really lived in the trenches. Have we mastered the mundane? 99% of our life is lived in the mundane. We have to master that. We can't just keep pursuing the mountaintop experiences. We need to be, become competent in the mundane. And, 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 and are we prepared for the ambush? Because Satan is out there prowling around like a lion, Peter tells us. And the minute you drop your God, guard, the minute you, I drop my guard, he's going to pounce. So are we doing our spiritual aerobics? Are we doing our spiritual crossfit? Are we doing our spiritual stretches? Are our, our, our spiritual reps... Here you go, are we doing our spiritual clean eating? Are we making our spiritual trips to Sprouts and Whole Foods? Let me, let me just stop and tell, I'm off script here, let me just tell you something. So I, I like to go over to the you know, town and country, how many of you go, town and country, it's, it's like, you know, it, it, it's the greatest place in the world. It's Whole Foods and Trader Joe's right next to each other. You park one time, boom. You get a little walk-in, a little workout, let me tell you, every time I go into that parking, there is no place on earth where people are so focused as, to, as when they're walking into Trader Joe's and Whole Foods, I'm going to get my clean food eaten on. They're so focused. Why don't you try that at work or in school or with your spouse, okay? Nah, I'm going to get my celery. It's amazing. Don't get in anybody's way in Trader Joe's, by the way. Have you noticed that? Well, that's one of the most dangerous places in the United States, is in Trader Joe's. Okay, ah, you know. I gotta get those gluten-free peanuts or whatever. I don't know. It's just crazy. I shop there, too. Anyway, are we doing... You get the metaphor, right? You know, why, why are we not that focused about this stuff? Did we live 2018 like we're preparing to finish the race? This is just God working beautiful timing. Um, there's, a, there's a guy that I've known in prison for almost 20 years now, he's been in prison for 21, the passing of the year is pretty much his place where he ticks off the years because he's getting out in February 2022, so he's got three years uh, to go. Uh, I got a let. we write regularly, probably at least once a week, maybe more, his name is Joe Camara, he's been in for 21 years now. Um, and I, and I got a letter from him yesterday. I checked the mail at 1 o'clock when I came over here for the service, and there was a letter in there from him. And because of everything going on yesterday, I couldn't read it. And then I had a little bit of time this morning, so I opened it and read it. I mean, just unbelievable uh, timing. Um, I want, this is a guy who's been in prison for 21 years. I want you to listen to what he writes about this very issue, finishing well and about how we allocate our time. It's a new year, Happy New Year, by the way. I love to put another calendar year behind me, but please be praying for me that I can finish this chapter of my life well." He's talking about prison, that I can finish this chapter of my life well. I already see myself checking out of this place mentally and emotionally. I am so, he's got four O's there, so desperate to be gone and yet, I feel like there is still much work to do here. I can't help but think that the preparation that I'll need out there is contained in the moment right here, and I don't want to disregard these moments as inconsequential, when they could be the very things to hone my character." It's a prisoner, writing like that. So, are we working to finish well? Are we valuing our time? So get, I know it's hard to get a number in your mind after I read something like that, okay? A high number anyway, but think about it. Number five, did you anticipate the return of Christ? Paul continues writing to Timothy, verse eight, he says, now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing And then Jesus is speaking in Revelation 22, the last chapter of the Bible, and he says this. Look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Sometimes no commentary is the best commentary. So get a number. Four, six, eight. So now, these five things, perhaps you have a different grid, a different way to evaluate uh, your year. Some of you may have started with a three, now you got a nine. Some of you may have started with an eight, now you're like, I got a two, okay? No worries, because for either of those, Paul is reminding us that you need to learn from the past, but also get past the past. That's always Paul's teaching, learn from the past, but get past the past. So that you can constantly be looking forward to the upward call of Christ Jesus. We need to be able to evaluate, review, and learn. But we need to remember that at the cross, Jesus paid for all of that. All of our mistakes, all of our offenses, all of our... Everything, everything, it's done. Move past that now. Learn from it, but move past that. And continue that that upward calling of Christ Jesus. So now... This year. Here are some suggestions for 2019. And obviously, uh, the desires and goals that you and I have to improve our economic situation, to to get that job that we've been working for so long, to graduate with the degree that we've been pursuing for so long, to to find more and more pleasure in the joys of God's creation, to, to maybe get her to say yes or maybe get him to quit asking, those aren't bad goals. And those are not bad desires. Whatever I say today is not an effort to quench ambition. I am not anti ambition, but I am pro contentment, I am pro gospel, and I am pro Jesus. And remember, when it comes to contentment, the one who teaches us the most in the Bible about contentment, Paul, may be the most ambitious person to ever live. So the two can exist together. There's going to be tension, of course. But, but, but it's not all or nothing. It's really about perspective. We need perspective. And where else can we get the greatest perspective ever than, but then from God's word? So here's what Tom calls a fresh approach to ambition. There's, there's five things. First, he says, work to improve your relationships. So Paul writes to Timothy the very first time, this is 1 Timothy, Paul was very clever at how he named his letters. actually he didn't name them; somebody else did, but at any rate, um, he's right, I'm sorry, this is uh, 2 Timothy, it's chapter 1, early in, in the second letter, and he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, the Greek there is really more specific, it's to Timothy, my beloved son. My belo- Was there a DNA connection between Paul and Timothy? No. N- n- not at all. And yet he calls him his son. Okay, This is a tender, tender letter from Paul the Apostle, the guy that some people say is kind of harsh, kind of mean, kind of difficult, you know. He says, my beloved son. Uh, Tom Schrader, one of our founding pastors, um, he was mentored and discipled by a guy that he says is his spiritual father. His name is Larry Wright. I'm just curious, how many of you have ever sat in even one Bible study or heard a Bible study uh, from Larry Wright? Anybody in here? Look at that. See, hand's still going. He's been he passed away 17 years ago. What a legacy. That was passed down to Tom, okay? And, and if I were to say Tom, I mean, a, at least half of the hands in this room would go up, you know? And, and, and there's this connection. And then, and, then, and then Tom was the one. I, Jay Penny invited me to this Bible study that I didn't want to go to, and I heard Tom teach for the first time. And I heard biblical teaching with precision. Anybody can teach the Bible. But to teach it with precision is a great gift, and Tom is able to do that as well. And I've been sitting under him now for the last 29 years, and it's been great. This is a biblical way of doing things. And the relationships that we've developed in the midst of that, unbelievable. And all the ancillary relationships as well, so important. Now, I'm not saying that that Tom is Paul, and I'm I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying look at the template. And you can see that happening. So Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. And he starts this letter this way. I thank God whom I serve as, I did, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers day and night. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. My beloved son, my beloved child. Um, this may sound a little bit uh, self-exalting. It's not meant to be. It's just an observation that I've made. M- my parents really taught me well. Uh, th- th- this was like one of the, they taught me a lot of things. I, for some reason, I really remember this. When somebody does something nice for you or gives you a gift, you write them a handwritten thank you card. All right? Wow, I got some amens on that. (laughs) Jesus is Lord. Whatever. Write handwritten thank you notes. Amen. Yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. So I write handwritten... I, and I know, it, it, you know, sometimes it's like, yeah, I'll, t- I'll text, and I know some of you are like, wait, I did something for you. I haven't received it. Okay, I'm sorry. Forgive me with the grace of Jesus. All right. But I do. I have stacks. I, I, oh, I love the paper source over there at Town and Country. They have the best thank you cards, okay? And I buy them also at Target in the bundles, and I, and I handwrite these. It's amazing. People walk up and go, oh. oh, oh. You, you had to write this and find an envelope and a stamp and address the envelope and put it in a mailbox? Okay, here you go. It's not for the accolades, but what that does is it drops all those barriers. It opens people up to relationship. It makes us more vulnerable when you take a little bit of time. When you say, I'm actually gonna going to press into this and work at it in a way that they're not really expecting. We expect an email or a text or a post that thanks us. But, but something different, it, it really makes a difference. Been, I've been, as a pastor, I've been at many, many, many deathbeds and walked through the last couple weeks, month of, of many people's lives. I will tell you that no one, no one on their deathbed has ever wished that they'd spent more time at the office or that the Diamondbacks didn't trade Paul Goldschmidt. And, and I realize that that's very recent, but you, you get the metaphor, right? You understand. They're not talking about, about uh, how great Steve Nash was. They're not talking about why did we trade Jeff Hornacek for Charles Barkley. Because we almost won an NBA championship. But that's beside the point, okay? It, it, it's the fact that we are, we are so concerned about the Cardinals and the Suns and the D-backs. I believe we're not concerned enough about the Coyotes, but nevertheless, okay? We're so concerned about these things, and, and they're important, and they're fun, and I love it all, okay? But it's just not that important in the internal scheme of things. You realize that? You realize that? You know what they're talking about on their deathbed? They're talking about their family, their faith, and their friends. I know that sounds like a McDonald's commercial, but that's exactly what they're talking about. Family, faith, and friends. Work to improve relationships. Second of all, have a desire to increase in freedom. But here's the key. Genuine freedom comes in Christ and in our relationship and commitment with him and not in our circumstances or our status. We are convinced that if we just get the right circumstances, the right status, the right position, the right whatever, our freedom will be increased. And that's, that is Satan lying to us. Our freedom is rooted in who Christ is. Paul writes in, second, in 1 Corinthians 7, and I'm using the message here because I think Eugene Peterson's uh, translation and interpretation here is spot on. God paid a high price for you. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the fact that you and I fall short and we can't fix that ourselves and so we need God to intervene, and he has through his son at the cross and the resurrection. And if we embrace him, we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. God paid a high price for you. He did what you and I cannot do for ourselves. So don't be enslaved by the world. That's a really good conclusion. God paid a price for you, so why do you submit yourselves? Why do I submit myself, myself to, to the prisons that the world offers us, even though they dress them up? Okay? Brothers and sisters, stay where you were called to be. God is there. Hold the high ground with him at your side. And I know, I'll get a Bible neat nickel, walk up, that's a 1 Corinthians 7, the context is marriage. I know the context is marriage, but isn't that true in all contexts? Isn't it, can it be applied everywhere? And and when I read this, I can't help but think of those four areas. I have conversations with um, people in our church, with people, other Christians, and with lots and lots of college students. And this attitude is just rampant. We are so discontent with four major areas of our life as human beings. We are discontent with who we are, where we are, who we are with, and what we are doing. We're just discontent. We're so sure. You and I are so sure. Even right now, you're sure that there's something better is happening somewhere else with someone else, as someone else, while doing something else. You're just sure of that. And by the way, social media has only added to this. How many of you are spending your life looking at what other people are doing on social media and being jealous? Just think about how miserable that is. Okay. Well, I wish I was them and there and all that stuff. I let me tell you something. Uh, you, I'm never going to post that that I'm sitting on the couch eating a bowl of Doritos and drinking a Diet Mountain Dew uh, watching the office reruns for the fourth time. I'm not. But when I go to Martha's Vineyard, I'm posting all of that because I want you to wish you were me, okay? That's what I'm doing, all right? There is just a great deal of freedom. in Andy Warren, some of you know Andy. He has said a couple of times from this stage, you need to bloom where you were planted. Bloom where you are planted. Now, here you go. It doesn't mean you stay in unhealthy situations. We're not saying that at all. But, but we've gotten to this point where every situation we're in has got to be unhealthy because it's got to be some better somewhere else, and that's just not true. God wants to use you where you are primarily. He wants to use you where you are. Some of you are looking for a mission field. Have you thought about the mission field right in front of you? Right there! Where you are, where God has planted you. No matter where you are, who you're with, what you're doing, or who you are, there are going to be challenges and suffering. We have to understand that, but we also have to remember that God has promised never to leave us or forsake us. He will empower us and encourage us and fill us with His Spirit to be able to do that. Third, we should consider our passion and our zeal. Paul writes in Romans chapter 9, it's kind of an iconic um, paragraph, he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. He's taking an oath as he says this. I am not lying. My conscience bears uh, me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For what? For I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul's, Paul's a, a Jew, and he was raised in Judaism, and he was, a, he was one of the best ever. He, he got into the school of Gamaliel, the greatest pharisaical school of his time. And Paul was at the top of the, the, the class. He was the best student. He, he, was the era, he was everything. He's got a resume, a religious resume like nobody's tomorrow. And then on the road to Damascus, Jesus just slays him. And he becomes a follower of Christ. And he's sold out, and he's planting churches, and he's, he's telling other people. He, his life mission now is to tell people about Jesus. But his kinsmen, many of the other Jews, they don't see it Paul's way. And in fact, many of them decided they wanted to have him killed and tried to kill him. You understand that? His kinsmen, his fellow Jews, wanted him dead because he was a Christ follower. Here is Paul taking an oath and saying, I'm willing to cut myself off from eternity in the kingdom of God with Jesus, my Lord and Savior. I'm willing to cut myself off for eternity so that my brothers and sisters would be saved, that they would know Jesus. I would trade my eternal life for theirs in a heartbeat. Here you go. That's passion. We have no idea what passion is today. Today we think that an elevated voice indicates passion. Today, we think posting something on social media demonstrates how passionate we are. Passion involves sacrifice and service and action and a lot of ridicule. It just does. It's going to be really, really hard. Paul has a passion for the gospel. And in chapter 1 of Romans, he says, and I'm not ashamed of it. Come at me. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because it is the salvation for anybody who would believe, Jew and Gentile. He wants Jesus for his friends, his enemies, and for people who are indifferent. People who just go, eh, whatever. It's Jesus in Revelation 3. When, when he's writing to the churches, and, he's, and John's recording it, and he writes to Laodicea, and he says, I know your deeds. You're neither hot nor cold. I wish you were one or the other, because I could abide in that, but you're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Do something. Here you go. Sometimes I get criticized because I quote Harvard psychologists because, you know, they play on a different team than we do. Look, those guys are smart and they have really good research. It's not that bad to, to look at that stuff. Here's what the research uh, tells us people today want and expect passion in others, but are perfectly willing to live with indifference in themselves. That's just the truth. And social media has made this really easy to happen. I'm telling. Cody calls it the ministry of awareness. There are so many people who have a ministry, and it's an, a ministry of awareness. Their ministry is to make other people aware of injustices so they can go do something about it. No, no, I'm, I'm here. I got my latte, and I'm banging out on the computer, man. I'm making other people aware so they can go do something, so they can go sacrifice. Have you been down to the border? Have you actually helped an immigrant in our community? Have you done something for refugees who desperately need our help? Have you you written a prisoner? Have you gone down? Have you helped your neighbor? Have you helped an elderly neighbor who doesn't mow their lawn because they can't? No, but I posted something about it. I'm hoping just real soon God will move in somebody else's life and get that done. Okay. See, that's not passion, that's laziness. We need to recognize that. And do something different about that. Number four, we should expand our perspective. This is one of my favorite paragraphs in the entire New Testament. Because it's so misunderstood. (laughs) Here's Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Chapter one. And it is my prayer... That your love may abound more and more. I just see people reading this going, "Yes, love abounding more. Love, love's a good thing. I want to abound more. Love, yes, yes." But then Paul qualifies the statement. I want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and on all discernment. Oh, well, that sounds kind of sterile and no fun. I want feelings. I want to be. I want it to feel good. Paul tells us that genuine love abounds in knowledge and discernment, and there's a reason for it. He says, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ Jesus. That's genuine, biblical, godly love. It's it's a love that discerns. It's a love that presses on. It's a love that loves when, when you don't feel like loving, but you know that's how God has loved you. And that's the character of God that he's imputed to you through the filling of the Holy Spirit. And we can now love others in that same way. It may not be the most exciting love, but it's the best love. And it's, and it's the love that makes the biggest difference. Listen, feelings ebb and flow. Those of you that have been married for more than two weeks, you recognize that. Okay? Feelings ebb and flow. But a love that is rooted in God's love for us and in discernment and knowledge, that's a love that actually makes a difference. Verse 11, Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, this adds a perspective to our understanding of love that we desperately need, especially in today's context. Love needs to abound, but it needs to abound in knowledge, not feelings, in discernment and wisdom, and not in foolishness. And so expanding... Uh, Our perspective, by understanding God's perspective on things in our lives, will help us to set priorities in a way that truly benefits our life. And then the last one, number five, a commitment. In 2019, a commitment to a strengthening of spirit. This is the passage that Laura read for us from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, That's the gospel right there. Again, the fact that we can't save ourselves and that God has done it for us and that, and that we should pursue knowing God through community, through relationship, through studying his word, through worshiping uh, together. Again, I think that's all the commentary that's needed on Ephesians 3. As we wrap, I, I, there's a couple things I want you to consider as we go. Um, just consider thinking about three relationships that you could cultivate and take deeper. And where might those relationships be? Maybe they're in your own household, or at least one of them is. Maybe they're at work. Maybe they're here in the church. Maybe they're in your neighborhood or at school. But really think about that and, and how you can improve just three relationships. Jesus had 12 deep relationships. So this, And if you want to start smaller, go ahead. Start with something. Here you go. Two constraints to remove. Remove some constraints in your life. It's not, that's not a bad thing. How many of you feel like every day is just a battle to keep things from being added to your plate? Okay, how about getting up occasionally and finding something to remove from your plate? I, I years ago, I had a friend of mine, his name was Gary. He had a, he had a law practice with three or four other partners. At the end of every year, they sat down with a list of their clients, and they fired 10% of their clients. The the lawyers, the firm, was firing 10% of their clients, calling them up and saying, we're not going to take care of you uh, anymore. The clients that caused their biggest headaches, okay? The clients that caused the biggest, you ever thought about, I know some of you, that's really harsh. I I don't know. I think it's kind of smart. Have you thought about that? You thought about kind of running things in your life, maybe that way? Okay. Consider some of these constraints on your life. I have a really good friend now, and he was telling me a couple weeks ago, this is it, I'm done. He said, and and I I wrote it down, I've resolved I'm not going to do anything anymore that I don't want to that is purely derived from my insecure desire to be liked by others. I'm not going to do it anymore. And he says, I know there are things that I have to do that I don't want to do and that I don't like to do. All of us have to do that. But I'm no longer going to do things that I don't want to do just because I think it will get somebody to like me better. I just don't have the bandwidth to care anymore. (laughs) He says, "And, and really, I need to find my freedom in Christ and not in the approval of other people. That's true. So here you go. Number three. Consider finding one passion to feed. Just one. Would it be maybe prisoners or refugees or children's ministry or getting involved with the Phoenix ref- re- Rescue Mission or Food for the Hungry or or maybe getting on the greeting team, passionately greeting people who come? Uh, maybe learning how to lead a Bible study. Don't just go to a Bible study anymore. Actually lead a Bible study. May- Resolve that you're going to take Josh Prather to coffee once a week. He would really like it if that's the, the passion that you're going to feed. I can tell you that right now. Find one passion to feed. And then, here you go. I, I'm a reader, so I really like this one. I read a lot. And it's because I like it. I really do. It gives me perspective. I love stories. I, I learn a lot from it. Find five books to read. And, and here you go. The, the assumption is... Theology books, books about God, books about Jesus, yeah, yeah, that'd be great. But I don't even read all, I don't read nothing but theology books. I read a lot of different stuff because here you go, I can find the gospel and I can find biblical truth in just about any story. It's really something. And it just expands your, your perspective. And, and by the way, you know, reading takes time and, and I can't multitask when I read, okay. Listen to five audiobooks. All right, you can multitask then. Okay, Wh- whatever it is, get exposed to this. Okay, N- Netflix and, and, and Amazon and all that, all the documentaries, TED Talk that's all great. And, and I'm not saying don't do that, so I'm just saying add something else to this. I tell you, I, I do, I, I read a ton of books. Last year, um, not 2018, 2017, my theme was. Uh, books on preaching, so you're probably not very interested in that, and some of you were praying that I would read more books on how to become a better preacher, so I did. Anyway, and, and I read a lot of books on communication. This year, it was just, it, I was all over the place. I did read a lot of biographies, but I was all over the place. Here you go. A lot of people asked me this question, so I'm going to give you <clears throat> my top six books that I read in 2018. Okay, here you go. I read Red Notice, Not a theology book, but it's a true story. Has anybody in here read, Red Note yeah? I don't want to put words in your mouth. This is pretty amazing, isn't it? By the way, you look at um, top five book lists anywhere on the internet, Red Notice is on that thing. It's a story of Bill Browder. I mean, it's just, and by the way, it it might open you up to understanding Vladimir Putin. Uh, Some of you, if you don't know who Vladimir Putin, never mind. Okay, so anyway, it might help you understand him a little bit better. I read Devil in the White City. Okay, I know some of you are like, that came out in 2008. Look, I am always late to the game. I am. I started watching Seinfeld five years after season nine was finished, okay? That's when I got hooked on Seinfeld. I didn't start watching The Office until it was done, okay? I know it's late, but it's a, it's a really interesting historical book, Devil in the White City. How many of you have read Devil in the White City? Anybody? Just a couple of you. That's a little surprise. Rachel, thank you. Good. Okay, just a few of you. All right, here you go. East of Eden, isn't it tragic that I'm 59 and, and I still hadn't read one of the great classics ever written? I finally read it this year. It's magnificent. And, and I'll tell you, it was my 18-year-old niece who recommended it to me. She, Uncle Frank, you got to read East of Eden, man. That book is really theological. And you know what? It is. John Steinbeck is a great, the- it's not written as a theological book, but he's a great theologian. He has an understand, a biblical understanding of, of human depravity that is unrivaled. N- maybe Woody Allen rivals him in that, but John Steinbeck is much more interesting in the way he, he lays it out for you, okay? East of Eden, and I know it's a long book. It's 660 pages long, and in the font that I needed to read it in, it was 990 pages, so I know it's long. It'll take you a while, but uh, then Bad Blood. Anybody read Bad Blood? Anybody? No one? the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Okay, I know it sounds like a theological book. Bad blood, that's not the blood of Jesus. Okay, it's not. It's a story of, of, uh, well, you need to read, it's really good. Here you go. Best theology book I read this last year was Skeletons in God's Closet. And it was written by Joshua Butler, who is now a pastor at Redemption Tempe. So that's kind of cool. It's great. It's a really helpful book. And then number six is Humble Roots by Hannah Anderson. Fantastic, fantastic book. And frankly, the most surprising book I read, I went into it kind of like, eh, all right. And I came out of it going, you got to read this book by Hannah Anderson. It's fantastic. A couple of um, honorable mentions. There's a, uh, a psychologist named Leslie Vernick who, who has written a series of books, and I read her uh, The Emotionally Destructive Marriage this year. Very, very helpful. Uh, and also, I'll just tell you that, that Sean Levy's... Um, biography of Robert De Niro. Long book, more than 500 pages, but it was absolutely fantastic. Robert De Niro is kind of a strange guy, but a lot of life lessons. I I was tongue-in-cheek when I said kind of, but a lot of life lessons in there uh, by reading those biographies. I appreciate the fact that I got a courtesy laugh out of that. Okay, (laughs) so there you go. Let's make 2019 great. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for Your word and its truth, and God, let me just tell you, every person in this room should be thankful for Tom Schrader and for how you have worked through him, how you have formed his life so that he's a person that you use to form other people's lives as well. God, we thank you for him. We we lift him up in prayer. We celebrate him. Uh, God, we thank you for him. God, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would have the courage to do these things in our lives as well. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.